Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Exploring Astrophysics. Today I am joined by Dr. Lynn Hillenbrand, a professor of astronomy at Caltech who is an expert in the formation and evolution of young stars and star clusters. Okay, my first question for you is, could you give me a brief introduction about your background in astrophysics, how you got into it, and maybe what kind of interests you, what are the questions that interest you in the field? Sure. Uh, so let's see, I grew up on the East Coast of the United States near Philadelphia uh, and uh, in a suburban area. And at one point I did, I did acquire a small telescope, but it was not when I was very young. It was maybe more in high school as a, as a Christmas present. Uh, and I, I, uh, tried to use that, but I found it kind of frustrating, uh, you know, just the practical aspects of trying to find objects in the sky. And it was not one of these fancy telescopes that tracks and takes good pictures. It was a pretty primitive one where you had to turn the right ascension and declination axis to find you know, and and keep your object in the field and and I got frustrated with that pretty pretty quickly, um, but I had uh, subscriptions to astronomy magazine for example so that's where I got a good view of pretty pictures and some write ups of what was what was exciting about astronomy and so you know it's a field that interests me just as um, uh, well literally out of this world uh, you know kind of looking looking at um, things that people have stared at in the sky for, for centuries, millennia, you know, tens of thousands of years, and, uh, you know, bringing eventually, you know, kind of wanting to understand from a, a physics perspective what's going on. And so um, I went, you know, so I did reading uh, as, a, as a high schooler, middle school, high school, probably high school, I guess, and uh, went to university with an intention on being a major in uh, astronomy and astrophysics and managed to follow follow through with that, uh, which, you know, is not always easy because I think people don't often recognize, um, you know, it's not just astronomy, but it's all of the math and physics and often chemistry, uh, not quite yet biology, but uh, eventually maybe we'll be in astrobiology as a, as a full-fledged field, but uh, you know, how much math and physics there there really is. And so there's a lot of, at the university level, um, there's a lot of precursor work before you get into the fun, the fun parts of learning, learning the astronomy, which is what I think motivates a lot of students early on. There's a lot of math, physics, and even engineering was a huge part of our field as well. You know, making the equipment that actually enables us to take the data is, you know, primarily engineering, both hardware and 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 software. So there's, there's lots of elements within uh, astrophysics. It's not, it's not just the staring at the night sky, although that's what get a lot of people involved, right? There's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of detail on the way to really making contributions in the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what, uh, even for me, it was first, it started first off by, you know, looking at these beautiful images and then from there developed more into wanting to understand how they, how they had formed and the processes behind them. So could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, the kinds of work you've done in the field and what particularly interests you? Sure. Well, I work on uh, the process by processes by which stars and clusters of stars form out of uh, what's called the interstellar medium. So the gas and dust uh, at very low densities uh, and a huge range of temperatures uh, in the interstellar medium. Uh, you know, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of physics that goes into determining you know, their heating sources in the universe 
and cooling mechanisms from physics and that that balances that balance of processes determines what we actually observe and so you know gas and dust physics is a huge part of all of astronomy um, data that we take at you know whatever wavelength from x-ray uv optical infrared millimeter radio wavelengths you know at all these wavelengths you know it's basically um, physics of physical processes that go into determining the light that we see and whether it's photometry or spectroscopy or more advanced techniques like polarimetry, right? It, it's all the interactions of light with physical particles and you know, what, what goes on there uh, to produce what we finally observe at our, at our telescopes. And so, um, you know, the, the questions in my field of star formation and, and young stars, you know, make use of all of these techniques right across this, this whole spectrum. Um, the, so I guess just to describe a little more, a little bit more about what I actually do. Um, so um, stars form in these dark clouds that are very dense, very cold places uh, that are, you know, collections, collections of gas that become denser, uh, more gravitationally bound. Uh, and there's um, one rule in astronomy and you know life on Earth and astronomy in general, which is gravity always wins uh, eventually. And so there are forces uh, on these clouds. They're rotating around the center of the galaxy. They might be um, stretched and sheared by that process. They might collide with other clouds. So there's lots of lots of things going on, but eventually these clouds collapse and and uh, form stars under their own self-gravity or they they fragment to form clusters of stars, individual stars, binaries, uh, triples, quadruples, you know, different different families and formations of, of stellar groups. Um, and so that, uh, you know, how that happens, um, what determines the properties of the stars that come out, uh, whether um, planets form around these stars, we know, you know, very commonly planets are seen around mature stars and the field of exoplanets is a very vibrant and growing, still growing field right now. Um, but how that all happens, you know, back backtracking how those planets form is more in the realm of people like me who study young stars, you know, how, how the stars form, how the planets form within these um, disks of gas and dust that are residual, they're left over, the, 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 the gas and dust out of which planets form are the the leftover material that didn't wind up in the star. Um, right. So the, the few percent of mass that's still left in a circumstellar environment is, is what planets grow out of. And so there's a whole range of questions um, from the kind of large scale molecular cloud level uh, to individual stars and how they accrete gas and build up their mass to the kind of leftovers in the disk that wind up uh, forming forming the planets. So my scientific interests span all of that. And uh, as I said, make use of radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum, right? So, so no matter what piece of the puzzle you're interested in, you know, or what technique you're using, you know, there's a there's an application in, in young stars. Got it. From what I understand, the main barrier behind studying these the evolution of these stars really closely is all this dust and gas that's sort of getting in the way. So could you, for a bit of context, provide talk a little bit about what do we understand already about the evolution of young stars and what is still what is, what are we still trying to figure out? Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, so the 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 initial 
parts of the process, the kind of you know, fragmentation and, and isolation of an individual object out of this you know, sea of the molecular cloud, uh, that is the, the theory of what's happening there and the observations are in, in pretty good agreement. Um, after that, there's kind of a big uh, blind spot where we have where, you know, there's lots of theories and lots of observations and, and we don't quite have a, have a clear picture of this yet. And as you say, it's because the, the process is highly obscured from us. Um, one of the ways that, uh, you know, we get around that. So optically, we look at these dark clouds and we can't see the stars behind them or the stars that are forming in them. But when we go to longer wavelengths, yeah. particularly from the optical, say to the near infrared, mid infrared millimeter, we're going towards longer and longer wavelengths. And uh, just by the properties of light, the wavelength of the light and the size of the mainly dust particles that are mixed up with the gas in the, in the molecular clouds, um, the uh, wavelength of light is long enough that you can kind of get around, you sort of go right around the, the the dust, whereas the optical light, the wavelength is short enough that you intersect the dust and the dust absorbs that radiation or scatters it so that we don't see it. When you go to longer wavelengths, you can therefore you know, penetrate into the, the deeper, uh, uh, colder parts of the molecular cloud. And if you go all the way uh, out to millimeter wavelengths, you're seeing you're really seeing the radiation uh, from from the from the dust and the process of star formation itself. Um, one of the issues is um, the spatial resolution that we have from our telescopes. It's a mm -hmm. uh, it's dependent on both the size of the telescope. So if you have a bigger telescope, you 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 collect more light, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you trade that off against the, the the spatial resolution that that you know, bigger telescope enables. But there's another factor, which is the wavelength of light. Uh, and so as we go to longer wavelengths, we actually have less spatial resolution. And so when, we, when we're really peering down into the darker parts of these clouds, you know, we, we, we don't see them at fine scales like we do in the optical. We have bigger, bigger beams in the millimeter and the radio, say. Um, and so it's a little bit harder. So it's, you know, kind of trading off the, and that's one of the things I think philosophically that has always interested me about astronomy is, you know, you don't have all the information that you want. You're not doing a closed experiment in a lab, like a biology lab or a chemistry lab where, you know, you control everything that goes in and yeah. control the temperature and, you know, other things about the environment and, and see what happens. You know, we're just observing what we can observe, you know, as the, the photons rain down on earth, we try to collect them and, and analyze them. Um, and so one of the interesting things is that you, you can do different things at different wavelengths, you have different limitations of spectral resolution or spatial resolution, um, or different physical processes that you're probing, you you don't have the whole picture. And so you're trying to like piece together what I learned here and what I learned here and what I understand from from theory to to explain to explain what happens. Um, but so, yeah, I guess I didn't, I didn't quite answer your question of what's, you know, what, what are the big questions? So, so there's a lot of, of, um, you know, just unanswered, uh, or lack, lack of complete understanding of what is going on from this sort of dark embedded phase to, you know, a star that we see in the optical mm -hmm. finally emerges. Um, and there have been, again, there's a, a wealth of data that are now available and we're kind of putting the, putting putting these pictures together, but it's basically how the star acquires its mass, right? How, what determines, you know, exactly where in the cloud, you know, when and where the stars form, um, 
how they acquire their mass, um, which they acquire, they accrete, the term is called accretion. <laughs> so uh -huh. acquiring material uh, first through the direct infall from the cloud and then through um, accretion from one of these circumstellar disks that I've referred to, um, how that mass gets built up, what that final mass is, um, whether the star forms alone or in a binary or a triple or in a you know big cluster of a thousand stars, right? All of it, it, yeah. there are supposition[s] and you know theories theories out there, but there, there's still a lot of questions, and I think maybe the details of that are a little too much in the in the weeds for this conversation. But right. I find it still a, you know an incredibly um, fascinating field and then connecting it to planets again there's sort of the you know how do planets form in the disks and how do how do the properties of these um young star circumstellar disks connect to the exoplanet population that we see mm -hmm. around much older stars so you know all of these questions i i find fascinating and keeps me keeps me going day and night <laughs> naively i can't help but think basically you have some sort of irregular distribution of matter and then under the force of gravity, the densely clumped regions collapse, and then the less dense regions sort of join the more dense regions, and you end up with a star. But obviously, what you're studying is much, much more complicated to that. So what are the sort of factors besides gravity that's making this much harder to work out for you? Yeah, so uh, some of it is the chemistry, right? So chemistry is actually a very important um, component in, in cold molecular clouds and uh, interstellar molecules. There are much more, um, many more, many of the molecular species we know about, you know, we see only in space, mm -hmm. uh, not not in, in labs. And so the interstellar chemists, uh, you know, it's kind of thrive, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it, it's a thriving field that connects to, again, like real chemistry, uh, understanding from space, you know, helps inform uh, what we do here on earth and in the field of chemistry. Uh, so that's a big part. Um, other forces like magnetic fields are important in this besides gravity. So that's, that's, I would say the other major one, there's, there's gravity and there's magnetic fields, which provide, you know, also, a source of energy, um, you know, the, the kinematics of the situation, the, you know, collapse versus rotation is another big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the magnetic fields are also important because some material is, is falling into the system, either you know, spherically or through one of these disks, but then in part because of the magnetic fields, there's also an ejection of material in a, in a wind away from the star. So some of it comes in and lands on the star. Some of it is redirected away. And that balance, again, the star grows we know it grows so the the inflow is greater than the outflow because otherwise you know you'd be losing mass or you'd have zero mass gain so we know the stars gain from the secretion but there's still <clears throat> open questions and you know exactly the balance between these two and how the winds arise and whether they carry the entire disc away or you know again you know what pieces of the disc are affected by by these winds and magnetic fields and again kind of what's what's left over for for the planets to form from um, so, you know, those, those would be the, the major right. things, um, you know, kind okay. of composition, de you know, density, temperature, everything in, in astrophysics is density and temperature in some way. And that, that implies chemistry at some level, uh, or interactions between atoms or, or at high energies ions, right? So all this stuff is kind of the, the same pieces of intersections between physics and chemistry, but then there's all the dynamics effects and then added to that is magnetic fields. Right.
Could you maybe talk a little bit more about these circumstellar disks? And is this a theory or is this experimentally observed or is this generally like perceived as what, what's actually happening? Uh, yes, fascinating uh, subject, uh, you know, with a, with a long history. So theorized uh, literally for centuries. So the very uh, first um, discussion of this uh, is thought to be by the philosopher uh, Kant, who had a, a paper uh, trying to explain the, the solar system. So, you know, for a long time, as long as we have understood that there are planets other than Earth and that they're all going around the sun, you know, mapping out the solar system and understanding, you know, what's happening in the solar system, how did it form? And, you know, how did how did life arise on Earth and how did the Earth form and how did the solar system form? And that's been, those questions have been around for a long time. And so um, there was, you know, philosophical hypothesis that, you know, some kind of disk because the planets are largely in, in the same plane, not entirely, but, um, you know, that's the dominant uh, structure of the solar system. You know, so this idea had been around for a while. It was developed theoretically earlier in the 1900s. Um, and one of the turning points for this entire field was a mission in the 1980s called IRAS, uh, which was an infrared infrared astronomy satellite uh, that surveyed at long wavelengths, like kind of out that were very sensitive to dust around the temperature of the Earth, let's say. So a few hundred Kelvin, 13, 300 Kelvin is roughly the temperature of the Earth and, and cooler dust all the way down to like 10 Kelvin, which is interstellar dust. Um, and so this satellite actually saw that when we looked at some stars, particularly stars that we thought for other reasons were young, they had these huge infrared excess uh, emission. So more than you would expect from our understanding of, we look at the star, we see it in the optical, we can take a, temp a, a, a spectrum of it. So we know its temperature. And therefore from, again, theory, right? We can figure out how bright it should be at different wavelengths. And, you know, if it's sort of a normal stellar photosphere, a normal star like the sun, you know, that theory is now very well developed. So we know how bright stars should be at different wavelengths. And this 1980s satellite called IRES for the first time, it mapped the whole sky uh, at very low or spatial resolution. So getting back to kind of that thing, like the pixels were this big, you know, and the stars are this big. So there's some game of, or, you know, task of figuring out, okay, you know, I measure a brightness in this part of the sky, you know, which star is that exactly? So there's a little, little bit of um, work to do there, but the satellite showed us that um, infrared excess and therefore, which meant dust, like extra dust around these young stars was a fairly common thing. And there have been a sequence of other satellites since then. So um, uh, the some smaller uh, experiments also, but Spitzer would be the next one as a, a, a great observatory in the in the uh, U.S. NASA uh, system, and then Herschel uh, in Europe uh, by uh, ESA, um, and then more recently Wise, which is uh, again a U.S. mission. Uh, all of these have surveyed the sky at infrared wavelengths, and so we've gained at at different wavelengths, and so we've kind of gained a picture for certain young stars. We have them mapped very well through the infrared and uh, um, can test in great detail the models of these, you know, this whole infall process and circumstellar disks and accretion and, you know, what the dust looks like, exactly where it is and in what the geometry is, both radially and, and vertically, kind of what these very young disks look like. And so it's been 
you know, for the past 20 years, it's been an amazing bounty of, of data in the infrared um, following up on IRAS in the 1980s, which kind of started it. Uh, and so we have a, a really great um, empirical understanding. Beyond that, uh, there's been from large, in particular, large telescopes on the ground and some um, space-based work with HST and now JWST, these have uh, enough spatial resolution where we can actually see the disks. So, I mean, we can see the geometry mm -hmm. of them and understand kind of the aspect ratio of what you see, uh, you know, what it looks like and compare it from these uh, flux versus wavelength measurements that I was mentioning earlier is like the spectral energy distribution, right? How the energy is distributed in wavelengths and using theory to understand that. So we have that, but then we also have the, the two-dimensional you know, pictures that we can actually take at different at different wavelengths. And so that's, again, kind of the this light that is uh, seeing the dust scattering at short wavelengths. But then additionally, there's been the ALMA observatory, which measures uh, at millimeter wavelengths, is measuring the emission from the dust directly at very high spatial resolution. So there are images that uh, you can find quite readily from any of these telescopes about, you know, if you search up, you know, circumstellar disk and ALMA, you'll get these really nice galleries that show us um, literally solar systems in formation around these, these young stars. Um, so ALMA, uh, we'll see, I don't think I've seen too many yet, but we'll see JWST images in this era. And there are also HST images as well as ground-based images from Peck, uh, with which I'm associated in Hawaii, and uh, VLT in Chile. They're also, again, uh, very high spatial resolution images of these disks that you can find. And it's just amazing when you can see them at all the different wavelengths, and it really, you know, does give us a picture. So there's no no controversy about the fact that, you know, planets form in these in these disks, and that there's a, a certain time scale when the stars are very young, a few million to, you know, 10 million years uh, during which this process occurs. Right. But I know that's a very long-winded answer, but it's a it's a very exciting big topic. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. These disks um lead to the formation of planets. What specifically, what are the properties of the disk that can help us understand what planets they eventually end up making? And is isn't our solar system the best example we have of one because you know we're right in it. So are we able to use our own solar system for measurements or is it because we've, you know, sort of passed that point, we're not able to? Yeah, obviously our solar system, you know, is for a long time was the one, you know, we were we were trying to explain. And, uh, you know, it has certain properties like the inner planets are small and rocky and the outer planets are much bigger, you know, so-called giant planets and mainly gas with, you know, rocky cores, uh, but, but gas uh, envelopes. And so this geometry and the, the distribution of the planets, you know, for decades was basically what we were trying to reproduce. And since the very first days uh, at which planets were discovered around other stars, we've recognized that, you know, the universe is dishing out planets of all kinds of crazy <laughs> configurations and, and, you know, the evidence is leaning towards, you know, our solar system is maybe kind of not the norm in, in terms of its arrangement of, of planets. You know, we don't quite know that yet, but they're certainly the dominant other solar systems, you know, do look very different uh, in terms of, you know, how, how the, when they have multiple planets, how they're arranged 
or many, many other of these solar systems or exoplanetary systems have, for example, you know, Jupiter's very close in to their stars or Neptune's very close into their stars and not, you know, kind of puny little Mercury that we have and Venus and Earth, right? These are like tiny inconsequential, dynamically inconsequential planets. Um, whereas, you know, Jupiter is kind of the, is the dynamic or is the dominant um, force uh, in, in our own solar system, right? So so we're still in that process, right? This is still kind of a, a discovery process. And for the ways in which we've found planets around other stars, uh, the, the, the bias towards detections is basically these close-in planets, just because, you know, you observe things on certain timescales and it takes Mercury and Earth, you know, much shorter amount of time to go around the sun and produce a detectable signal that you might observe compared to Jupiter with an orbit of, you know, 12.4 years or whatever it is, right? People, people, you know, are trying, right? So in, in all of our exoplanet detections, you know, we only would have seen Jupiter go around like twice by now, um, right. which is something you might call a detection, let's say, ideally three times to call it a detection. So we're, you know, barely getting out um, with, with these, with these techniques. And we know a lot about exoplanets around other stars, less about the outer parts of these solar systems. And that's where that's where the disks, getting back to your question, that's where these disks and how the stuff formed comes in, because for the young stars, you know, we're not able to see kind of what's going on down in the middle. We're seeing these disks and you're more um, here, the observations are telling you more about what's going on in the large scales. And so what we're seeing is a lot of structure in these disks. They're not you know, when I was learning this field, you know, we write down a simple analytical model for a disk and you say the density, you know, has some fall off with radius. It has some fall off with the vertical height. You know, you have some kind of 3D shape that you <laughs> can write down math for and do calculations with. Um, but it turns out when we take these pictures from all these telescopes I've mentioned, you know, ALMA, Keck, VLT, HST, and you know, see the spatial structure um, you know, it's just a lot more complexity. It's like saying, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a hurricane, uh, you know, with, with an eye and a, you know, a disc, you know, sort of moving across the earth. But then when you go in with more detail, you know, you see, oh, this thing is rotating and, you know, it's got all this substructure and it's got these arms and bands and things like that. Like we're actually seeing all of that now in these in these disks, they're not just these flat, smooth structures. And that is what people are working, you know, again, kind of at the frontier right now to try to connect to the planet formation process and this kind of when and where do the planets form and how do they interact and migrate to wind up where we see them in the more in the in the older stars. So again, it's a, it's a trade-off between theory and and observations. And again, very active field right now is like looking at substructure in these in these disks and connecting it to the planets. Right. Yeah, I can definitely see with all, you know, this really high quality data, how exciting this must be. So I am conscious uh, of the time we have, but I did want to ask you a last question that's a little bit off topic. So as far as I understand, you're an observational astronomer. And so I wanted to know, how does that differ from being a computational or a theoretical astrophysicist? Is your time spent going to these observatories and gathering data or is that all automated? What do I, what do, I do? Yes. Well, um, you know, most astronomers have uh, what I call a day job, which is, you know, what they actually get paid to do. Uh, 
-hmm. that's not always research. So there's kind of a combination of, of research and staying at the forefront of your field. But, you know, we all have another job. I'm in particular, I'm a professor at university, right? So I teach classes, I advise students, I help students with their research, design research projects, uh, you know, m mentor and, and, you know, formally teach the astronomy. But in, uh, in, in conducting the research as an observer, I mean, yes, I definitely go to telescopes and collect data. I happen to be at an institution, you know, where we still, you know, historically have been prominent in developing the field of astronomy. So in the optical Palomar Observatory and then Keck Observatory have, and you know, in the future, maybe larger telescopes, my institution has been, you know, very in, involved in, you know, operating uh, those kinds of telescopes. Um, there are also, you know, more general access telescopes around at other wavelengths, um, uh, you know, to do different kinds of science. So I personally am still a go to the telescope, collect your own data, uh, you know, commune with the telescope and the universe. Right. Uh, uh, other, I, you know, I also use data that are more publicly available that have been, um, you know, done from big surveys, right? So, so astronomers individually kind of do do experiments and you know smaller scale things. Although you could have a you know big group operating around the world, but there's lots of data that you can just you know download from the internet from different space missions, where the whole idea is that your or or ground based surveys, where the whole idea is that um, you know the, the the there's an operation that collects completely standardized and uniform data that is. You know, well understood, well calibrated, useful to everyone. And so you know, there's sort of a mix of you know finding things in certain kinds of data and then going and follow following them up, you know, to take a spectrum of interesting in, interesting object, for example. So so I do both. Um, I'm actually taking a class up to Palomar this coming weekend to you know kind of expose more uh, students to you know what what it actually takes to produce this data because you know one of the things that's happening, as people just download data, say from Kepler or TESS or uh, the VLT archive, you know, people can acquire astronomical data um, and you know do interesting things with. There are lots of citizen scientists out there who are doing great stuff. Uh, but even for professional astronomers, even graduate students, you know, some of our graduate students have never been to a telescope because there is, you know, it's easy. The community is very open. We share, um, you know, most of our data. Uh, you know, connecting, having people connected with the observatories, I think is, it, it's extremely important. And we don't, we don't want to lose that because I think people need to understand, you know, there are real, you know, engineers and telescope operators. And, you know, there's a whole infrastructure that is working to make this data, right? It's not just stuff you can grab from the internet, right? It's like, there, there are people behind this. And so taking the students there to kind of see this is, is I think very, very important. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I definitely like going to telescopes, um, but, you know, I also make use of, you know, other other kinds of data sets that are out there, kind of what, whatever it takes to get the science done. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, that sounds like a really, really amazing job. It's just like these questions just seem so, you know, unattainable. But here we are listening to you speak about <laughs> how, how exactly you're, you know, working to solve them. So, yeah, thank you for speaking to me. This was very, yep. very fun. Humanity, humanity has infinite curiosity and, you know, we're only limited by the amount of resources we're uh, willing willing to invest to kind of answer answer these big questions. So, yeah. Thank Definitely. you. Thanks for the, the chat. Enjoyed meeting you.
Yes, me too.